Hello, this is David Spray, and welcome to another episode of the IC Disc Show. My guest today is David Mangus, president of Rainsman Consulting in Dallas, Texas. David has a really interesting story. He was on a partnership track at a big four accounting firm, and the COVID relief packages to small businesses came on during COVID-19. And David saw an opportunity to seize on this for the small and medium market. However, his employer was really more focused at the higher end, larger end of the market. So David saw an opportunity, launched his firm less than a year ago, and has just, the business has just exploded. David has a real passion for helping small and medium sized business owners, and he really appreciates doing a great job for them. We get into a bit about his background, how his diverse background contributes to his ongoing success, lessons he wish he knew when he was in his 20s, and last but not least, he had the quickest answer ever to the Tex-Mex versus barbecue question. I hope you enjoy this episode. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, David. It's great to be here, and I appreciate appreciate the opportunity to, to share some thoughts with you today. Well, that it is my pleasure. I was really looking forward to having you, you on the call. I came to know of you because uh, we share a number of clients, and my clients just raved about you, your company, the service you provide. And so I was happy to meet you, and I'm even happier to have you on the podcast. So let's get going. So tell me a bit about just your background. Uh, are you a native Texan? Actually, uh, I, I wish I could say that I am. Love it here in, in Texas, especially in North Texas, where our family is. But I actually grew up in the Northeast. So, you know, I'd like to say that I've got Southern hospitality with a little bit of a, with a little bit of a Northeast edge. But um, no, I grew up in the Northeast. We live here in, we live here in, in North Texas. And, and my wife and her side of the family's from the West Coast, just outside of Portland, Oregon. So we managed to, to navigate across the country. And, and so we, I think we have geographically have the U S pretty much covered. It sounds like it. It sounds like (laughs) it. So where, where did you go to school undergrad and what was your degree in? So I started out up in the Northeast University of Delaware, which is, you know, the fighting blue hens for those of you who are, are familiar with that part of the country. But, you know, I had a great experience there and I I received a, a bachelor's degree, funny enough, in criminal justice, which I know when we, we get talking a little bit about tax credits later, you, you may say, well, how are we going to make that connection? And it, it does all come around. But, you know, I, I had some aspirations of doing some some different things. It's, it's amazing how much your life and, and your career path will evolve over the course of, you know, 25 years or so. So, Sure. I know. I understand that. But then it sounds like you wanted to be a, a little more in the business world and you end up getting an MBA from Southern Methodist in Dallas. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. I had an opportunity along the way to, to do some work in Washington, D.C. for a, a big international NGO. And while I was doing that work, had an opportunity to get exposed to a lot more of the, the business world and public-private partnerships and some of those relationships. And through that, realized that, wow, this is really where we want, where I want to spend my time and what I really want to do. And as a result, decided to go back to school and, you know, got an MBA in finance and accounting. And from there, things really took off. And, and that's where really the, the last, you know, 15 or, or 20 years has really, has really kind of shaped who I am and what we do today. No, that's great. Yeah. I love the diversity of your background. As, as near as I can tell, you've worked for two of the big four plus uh, a spinoff from one of the big four. And you've also worked for a Fortune 50 company as well. Without getting into to kind of all the detail, why don't you tell me just the name of the the big four firm, the name of the spinoff, and who the Fortune 50 company is. Sure, absolutely. When I finished grad school, I was I had the good fortune 
of being hired by Bearing Point, which was a spinoff of KPMG after the Arthur Anderson days. Yep. And did some advisory consulting work for them. And unfortunately, um, for Bearing Point, they unfortunately didn't survive through some of the recession things and some other structuring challenges. And they ended up filing for bankruptcy. And um, PwC purchased a significant portion of their North American operations and contracts. Okay. Um, at the time, I was tied to uh, the Microsoft account for the firm. And for obvious reasons, that was one of the one of the accounts that PwC chose to acquire. So as part of that transition, I became a member of PwC. Um, Amazing firm, wonderful experience, learned a ton working for and with them, spent a few years there, and then continued to work quite a bit on the West Coast with technology companies and others, and had the good fortune of one of those technology companies. You may have heard of them, Microsoft. Yeah, Um, I think I've heard of them. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, most people have heard of them, maybe. Um, Yeah. But uh, we were working on a project there, and you know, just developed some very strong relationships and they afforded me an opportunity to come on board there to play a global director role in their incentive compensation space. And um, really enjoyed my time being part of the leadership team there and working with them. Spent a few years doing that. And then funny enough, you know, as things tend to do in life, they come full circle. One of the indirect tax partners at Ernst & Young reached out to me and said, hey, we're standing up some new business lines and you know, we'd love to have somebody with your experience and background in management consulting come over and join us. And to be frank, at the, t- at the time, I, wasn't, I wouldn't have dubbed myself a tax guy. Mm-hmm. I was a management consultant by trade and at heart. And I went over, I made the decision to, to leave Microsoft and join them and in 2015. And it was an amazing six-year run that I had at Ernst & Young in the national tax practice. And you know, I really embraced the tax world, went back, became an enrolled agent with you know an IRS certified enrolled agent, the whole nine yards, and really got into the indirect tax space. And, and we had a lot of success at EY. And then COVID hit, quite mm-hmm. frankly. And you know, I know we'll talk a little bit more about that. But when COVID came along and impacted our world so dramatically, it became it and the ripple effect that it had on the economy, on policy, and frankly, on stimulus and stimulus programs really became the thing that changed how I started thinking about both my career and how to help people and how to help businesses. Mm-hmm. No, that's that makes sense. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned you're an enrolled agent because I believe there's only three types of people who can communicate with the IRS on behalf of a client, CPAs, attorneys, and enrolled agents, I believe. That's right. That's right. So, so you're there at E&Y, you were there, it looks like that was probably your longest stint. I believe you were there a little over six years. What, what prompted you to want to leave or, or what was the impetus for you to leave? That's that, you know, that's a great question. And it's one that I get all the time. When I, when you look at my career and you look at where I was and the success I had at the firm and where I was positioned at the firm, a lot of people look at me, frankly, a little cross-eyed sometimes and go, well, why in the heck would you ever leave? And the reason became really simple. And it was really related to, funny enough, COVID-19 and COVID legislation. So I was part of a group that back in early 2020, when the pandemic really kind of took hold in the U.S. and all of the legislation started dropping around COVID stimulus and how the government was going to help keep things from completely going sideways at the time, right? Mm -hmm. They were just, we were trying to figure out a lot of things. And frankly, there were some new programs and there was a a little bit of building the airplane as it was being flown, Sure, Um, right? We were kind of navigating some uncharted territory. And The way the legislation was originally written for some of the tax-related programs, they had created 
sort of a bifurcation of two of the major programs that were out there from a stimulus perspective. One of them was the payroll protection program, the PPP, right? I think everybody's heard about that, knows about it. And probably a lot of your listeners have, were part of receiving those funds. Sure. Um, And then there was the employee retention tax credit, which had some really unique characteristics of it. One of which was it wasn't like your, it wasn't your mom's tax credit in that it wasn't one of those things that was a flow through tax credit that were, that would hit your federal return mm-hmm. um, and be a non-refundable tax credit that would offset taxable income over time. But rather this was a refundable tax credit. So said another way in layman's terms, this was generating cash. Okay. Well, the way the original CARES Act legislation was written was if you received a PPP loan, regardless of if it was forgiven or not, you were precluded from participating in the employee retention credit program, right? You okay. had to do one or the other, zig or zag. Yep. That's and, what I'd always thought. That's what I'd heard. Right. I thought that's how it always was. Exactly. And for a lot of people you know, that could receive a PPP loan, it was kind of a no-brainer. There wasn't a whole lot of analysis that you had to do, right? You didn't need a degree in high finance to figure out that the better deal, if you had any, if you had a reasonable expectation that your loan was going to be forgiven, it was always going to be a better deal to take the loan because it was going to be given forgiven dollar for dollar versus right. a tax credit that was capped and was 50 cents on the dollar. Right. Right. And then, of course, there's some back end things regarding the ability to deduct expenses for one and you had to do a wage add back for the other. Right. So there were some other things that made it not as rich of a benefit, but just on its face, dollar for dollar versus 50 cents on the dollar and capped. Pretty easy decision to make. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. By and large, small and medium sized businesses sort of put the retention credit in the rearview mirror. Because mm-hmm. right? they, they picked the PPP because they had to pick between the two. Exactly. They picked okay. a PPP loan. They got their loan. They moved on with life. And the ERC became an afterthought. A lot of them even forgot that they'd even ever heard of it, if they had ever heard of it in the first place at all. Okay. Fast forward. And and at that time, you know, when we were at e, when I was at EY, we were doing a ton of retention credit work. Is all for large employers. You know, mm-hmm. occasionally you get the very random instance where you had a small employer that, due to different facts and circumstances, may not have qualified for a PPP loan. Therefore, they were going the retention credit route. But by and large employers, thousands of employees, lots of Fortune 500, right? Basically, think the typical big four client that lives in the big four world. Okay. Now we get to December. And the second piece of legislation related to COVID stimulus comes out. And there were some key components to that. And that was the Consolidated Appropriations Act that was signed at the end of December of 2020. Okay. But for purposes of what we're talking about today, there was a key provision. There were two key things that turned the needle. One was they enhanced and extended the PPP program. Right, mm-hmm. created this ability for people to go get a second draw loan. Yeah. But they put additional requirements in place. So, said another way, they made the funnel smaller for people mm-hmm. that would be able to go get it. Right. You had to be able yep. to, they reduced the headcount size. You had to be able to demonstrate a decline in gross receipts uh, on a quarterly basis, of, you know, that was greater than a 25% decline. So there were thresholds and and watermarks that had to be met in order to participate. So it made the amount of people that were in that pool smaller, but small and medium-sized businesses still needed a shot in the arm. So what they did in the legislation was they opened up the retention credit to everyone. Okay. And they said, look, we're going to let small and medium-sized businesses participate in this program regardless of if they got a PPP loan or not. We're going to put some rules in place. We're going to make sure that you don't double dip. You don't create an artificial windfall for yourself, right? They put, so there were some rules, right? They put guardrails in place, but they said both prospectively and retroactively back to March of 2020, you can participate. 
completely change the landscape for a small wow. sized business. Yeah, that's right? amazing. Right. Now you have an entirely new program that's wide open to you that previously you either ignored or you put it in your rearview mirror. Well, at that point, I sort of started to have this internal tug. And I really started thinking about what it is that we were doing, which was at a big four like EY, we were being thought leaders. We were out in front of this. We were helping our clients. We were doing outstanding work from a tax technical perspective. We were delivering, you know, quote unquote, white glove service with a high level of quality and integrity. And Mm -hmm. I got to thinking to myself, I feel like there's a responsibility and maybe a moral imperative, maybe a little bit strong, but I felt that there was a responsibility, at least for me personally, to be able to translate that for Main Street. And I got to thinking to myself, why shouldn't a small and medium-sized business who otherwise wouldn't be affiliated with a big four not be able to get that same level of tax technical service and delivery at a reasonable rate. Sure. Sounds like a reasonable request, a reasonable desire. Right. Well, the problem is there's hundreds of thousands of small and medium-sized businesses out there and bandwidth for firms is only so big. Mm -hmm. And when you're kind of operating in that world, it's really hard to, as a big four, to scale, especially with the if you think about the lines of business in a big four, you have audit considerations and independence and conflict and right onboarding and risk. And there's so many different variables at play. It's really hard to say, we're going to go out and do something with speed and really broad and be able to deploy it quickly. This is something that is on a clock. So, I I looked around and I said, the only way that I'm going to be able to affect change and really going to be able to do what I feel I, I feel is really important to do is if I sort of grab the, sort of grab the reins and go do it on my own. Okay. And so I I made a very difficult decision and the the firm was unbelievably supportive. They helped me think through it. We discussed it at length. They wanted me to make sure that I was taking the time that I needed to make sure that this was the right decision for me. And we worked through all that. And ultimately, at the end of, you know, toward the end of mid to end of March of 2021, I stepped away from the firm and decided that, you know, and I had no clients at the time, I had no team. It was just me, myself, and I. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think that we have to kind of give this the old college try. And, you know, bless my wife who, you know, she sort of looked at me and said, you know, how often in life do you sort of have these things where you're, you're tax technically, you're, you understand it, you know it, and you can explain it very well. And you know that there's a need. And as a family, we were in a position that we felt comfortable to take a little bit of a chance. Mm-hmm. And, so, so we did, and it's been tremendous. It's been amazing. You know, I really love this story because I've I'm a serial entrepreneur, and in hindsight, I've been one probably since my first paper route when I was nine years old. I just didn't know it. <laughs> but because when I look at your career, I mean, is it safe to assume that you were likely on a partner track if you had just stayed at Y? Yeah, I, you know, I would say it, it's it's always hard to predict where where you're going to end up at a big four. But you know, all indications were that I was on that partner executive, you know, executive director, right? That executive level was right there. It was the next step, and you know, and firm leadership was very transparent that hey, that's that's what you're walking away from. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was kind of scary. I mean, when you think about it, someone who. I've kind of always lived since graduate school. I've lived inside of the comfort zone of big four and, and, you know, fortune 20, um, even through rough economic times and downturns and ups and downs, there's always a little bit of a sense of security when you work at firms that big and you work hard and do well. Yeah. 
in the and, in the uh, i'm just going to say yeah because you're the drawback for you it'd been different if you'd been what's the term they use if you were being counseled out sure but you your opportunity cost to be a partner for you know a couple decades you know that's a huge number so i can imagine why that gave you pause oh sure and well and and you know and it's also hard to leave colleagues, friends, clients, sure, the sure. comfort of knowing that you're leaving something that you know and you do well uh, for the unknown, you know, and you know that you're leaving in a good place when one of, you know, your senior people looks at you on the way out the door and partner kind of puts his hand on my shoulder and says, go hurry up and get this out of your system so you can come back. Uh, right. <laughs> that's a, um, that is now, a, now at the time I thought to myself, well, that's probably, you know, it's nice to know that because who the heck knows how this is going to go over the next, you know, three to six months. And I said, I'm going to be willing to kind of give this a run for three or six months and see if it gets any traction. And, you know, if it doesn't, boy, it sure is nice to know that's kind of how I'm leaving things. Like, now, to know that, that you know, a- there's going to be a, if this doesn't work out, there's going to be an opportunity to have a conversation around a soft landing, right? Yeah. Um, so I have one question, though, just before we get into the your company. Sure. So this program effectively, am I correct that it effectively expired at, during or at the end of 2021? That's right. So the way it was structured originally was the first tranche of the program kind of looked at 2020 in its totality from middle of March to the end of December. So sort of think of that as a singular kind of credit window. And then the legislation in December of 2020, that Consolidated Appropriations Act I was referring to earlier, as well as the America Rescue Plan Act that happened in the spring of 2021, which was the COVID relief bill that was signed by President Biden. Those two pieces of legislation effectively extended the credit for the four calendar quarters of 2021. Now, what ended up happening in November of 21 was the signing of the the big infrastructure bill. I'm sure mm-hmm. you're familiar with the $1.2 trillion uh, sure. infrastructure bill. And as part of that bill, they actually terminated, they went back retroactively and terminated the employee retention credit effective September the 30th of 2021 and took the, f- the funds that were earmarked for ERC in Q4 and reappropriated them to help offset the cost of the infrastructure. Okay. Well, thank you for that that background. So my question, and maybe I'm missing something here, is why go start a consulting firm for a tax incentive that's no longer around, right? Because after 2021, it wasn't in place. So so it seems like you might have missed the window, or, or am I missing something there? Well, it's a great question. And what I would say is there's there's sort of two, two, two key things. One, the program window of evaluation ended on September 30th of 2021. But the ability to analyze, calculate, and subsequently cap- retroactively capture the value from a company perspective, is there for the entire statutory period of the payroll tax returns that are affected, which essentially is three years from the that end of the end of the year in question. So, you know, a Q1 of 2024 is the end of the road, if you will, for doing anything retroactively related to 2020, and subsequently 2025. Q1 would be the end of the road for anything that you would explore extracting from a value perspective from 2021. So there's a Uh, runway, right? We have a runway. We've got plenty of time. What I always tell clients is because this is such a facts and circumstances driven credit, and it's very unique, and you'll hear me say more than once in a conversation if we were to ever talk about a specific company, this concept of one size fits one. I know that sounds very consultanty and I hate almost saying it, but it's <laughs> yeah. so true, right? You could have, 
you know, I always like to, and no offense to Dennis, but I pick on Dennis sometimes because they're very, you know, they have a straightforward enough business model and practice that you can sort of say all things being equal, right? They see patients, they work on them, you know, they do hygiene, they clean teeth, they do fillings, they do root canals, right? They all kind of do the same stuff, right? You know, outside of specialists, right? But general Mm -hmm. dentistry, they kind of all do the same stuff. You could have two dentists in the same town that both took PPP loans, that both have the exact same size staff, that both had the same government orders imposed on them, that had similar revenue. You get right. There's so many things about them that could be the same, but they may have made some decisions around people deployment or how they paid people or did they furlough or did they continue to keep people paid even during periods where they may have been partially suspended, right? The, all of those decisions that sit underneath the water could completely impact the ultimate value that company A gets over company B, but above the surface, they look like mirror images of each other. So when I say it's a one size fits one, it truly is. So when I talk to clients about having this long runway, I always like to mention, but you don't want to wait too long to get started because you don't want too much grass to grow underneath of it because you want to be able to be really crisp from both a data perspective when you're gathering data to substantiate your credit and when you're sort of telling the story and framing it out, you don't want it to become revisionist history, right? You want to be able to be factually accurate. Um, Time starts to fade memories. You have people turnover. You have all of these things that don't work in your favor if you wait too long. Plus, to be completely fair, these retroactive returns, these 941X, because it's all done through payroll tax. So most people are probably familiar with 941 quarterly payroll tax returns. The amendment version of that is called a 941X. Mm-hmm. You have to file these 941Xs to claim and capture the credit retroactively. And to be fair, the IRS is completely overwhelmed, as you can imagine, with you know companies filing for this stuff, plus their normal their normal run rate of work sure. that 941Xs are manually filed returns. They're not e-filed oh, wow. like an original 941. So it's one of the, you know, call it however many returns left that is not e-filed. It's manually filed. So they're literally getting paper and having to process these things. Right now, I had the pleasure of speaking with an IRS agent about 10 days ago and he confirmed that we continue to sit in this world of six to nine months from the time that you file an amended return to when you can reasonably expect to start seeing refund checks associated with those amended returns showing up in the mail. So oh, wow. there's a tremendous, you know, and I like to always be transparent with people. There's going to be a runway after the work is done to figure out what your credit value is and you file that return you still have a significant runway to wait for the the check to sort of the refund to show up in the mail. So again, the longer you sort of wait to action it, you know, you're just increasing the timeline for when you're ultimately going to realize the benefit. Okay. Well, that is really, well, thank you for that clarification. That was really a good explanation. So even though you left, it was just you, I'm guessing because of how supportive E&Y was on your departing, I'm sure they probably picked a couple of your best teammates and, you know, a hundred clients, and they probably went ahead and sent those your way to give you kind of a start. (laughs) Is that about right? Oh, sure. I sure sure wish it worked that way. No, you know, and I'm very respectful of, of, you know, how all these things work, right? And, you know, as you can imagine with firms, there's non-compete agreements for both people and clients. And, you know, sure. my commitment back to the firm was that I wanted to go do this, but in no way, shape, or form did I want to be in the market competing with them from either a talent perspective or from the client perspective, right? Okay. I, I want where I wanted to sort of live, eat, and breathe was Main Street. And so my thing was if we do this the right way, we should be, com- it should be complementary to each other and shouldn't be a conflict or a competition. Um, sure. You know, I've been very fortunate. We have, we're growing our team. We've continued to evolve that we started out in 2020 early on where I, I brought some folks on 
as hourly employees, you know, as more of an on-demand kind of a thing as we started to ramp. We quickly converted folks to full-time salary. We've brought some others on. Um, very fortunate that we've got a really nice mix of some, you know, junior analyst level folks and and senior level people. And we've had the good fortune of bringing people in from different walks of life with somebody who has a little bit of a more diverse background. I have an appreciation for diverse experiences and how those diverse experiences can bring unique perspectives. Sure. So we, you know, we've brought in, you know, a senior level finance person from a publicly traded company who's working with me both from a tax technical perspective and is also my CFO. We have, and then we've brought in other folks, you know, we have, like I said, we have analyst level folks, but then we've brought in people with backgrounds in things like internal audit and other places where not necessarily tax, quote unquote, tax professionals, but I don't necessarily, in this world and the things that we're doing, you don't necessarily need, right, federal tax return people, right? This isn't a a individual payroll or an individual tax return processing, right, it, kind mm-hmm. of an exercise. This is a business analysis. It's a research. It's a tax technical and you know, understanding financial statements and being able to understand payroll and break it down and Mm -hmm. build systems and processes, right? All of these things that diverse business backgrounds will support. And I think it's, I think it's helped us create robust processes, robust deliverables, and it's really helped propel us and really be able to grow quickly. No, that's awesome. But given that you just started it less than a year ago, I believe in March, Given the ramp up time, given the length of a sales cycle, because I, we serve the same markets, I believe, you know, privately held, closely held, you know, companies under a hundred million in revenue, I'm guessing for the most part, um, I know a little something about business development. My, my guess is if you really got off to a great start, you might have added, you know, 25, you know, if you really were firing on all cylinders, you know, maybe 50 clients, how with just 50 clients or 25 clients, you know, were you able to afford to build the team that quickly? Well, we've been very fortunate with the clients that we have, and we've been able to do a few things. I think one is that we've been able to not just go out. I don't have my name on a bus stop or on the, on a Mm -hmm. billboard anywhere, right? I'm not taking out ads on the radio. What we've done is We've lo- I've looked to relationships that I have and really took some time to reflect on my own personal network, my own personal Rolodex and relationships that I have. And that's where it started. And it started out with a, a couple of clients and those couple of clients turned into a couple of more and they referred me to a couple and it turned into a couple of more. And then... We had the, we've had a couple of very unique opportunities where a client turned into what I call, for lack of a better term, a channel partner, where okay. they said, hey, we've, you know, I have an or- a couple organizations we're working with, a CPA firm, for example, that they didn't want to get into this space, but their clients, right? They said, look, this is a, we don't want to go build this muscle. This is a one-time program. We need to be a mile wide and an inch deep. And this requires you to be an inch wide and a mile deep. So they said, you know, if we have folks that think they may be eligible or are interested in in doing more, can we send them your way? And we started having some of that happen. And, you know, I know you mentioned 50 clients. I, you know, I'm pretty proud to say that after 10 months, we're three times that size. Are you Um, serious? And yeah, it's been tremendous. It's been tremendous. And, you know, the clients kind of come from all walks of life. I mean, we have our smallest client is only a couple of people, but then we have clients that have hundreds of employees and I, we have one client that has a few thousand, you know, so we're sort of, we're here to help and serve. And, you know, we built this business. And one of the things that I committed to the team when I was bringing people on board, I commit to my clients is we're in this for a few reasons. We're in this to help people. We're in this to 
be able to try to drive as broad and as big of an impact as we can, but we're going to do it with excellence. We're going to deliver, you know, we're going to deliver a high quality product and we're going to do it the right way. And, you know, part of that is, you know, there's been times where I've had to say, frankly, hey guys, I hate to say it, but we've got to slow down a little bit, right? We've got to maybe be cautious about turning on too many spigots of opportunity all at the same time, because I'm not going to commit to bringing on clients unless I know that we can serve them in the way that I've, that we've committed to everyone that we're going to deliver. So, you know, we're trying to be very thoughtful because we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing. This is all about doing the right thing. It's about playing by the rules, but it's also about making sure that the people on main street who are entitled to some of these benefits and just don't know them, know about them, understand them, or have either tried to go about it with someone who maybe isn't as in the details with it, or they've tried to go about it on their own, helping them sort of make sure that they didn't leave anything behind. No, that's uh that is awesome. You can just hear your sense of calling and passion for this. That's that's great. Is I can't believe how the time has has flown by. Just a, a couple more questions, maybe sure. three more. One Absolutely. is, and you touched on it. You know, I might think, well, hey, you know, all these companies you work with, they all have a CPA firm. Why not just go to their CPA firm and have them do it? And you kind of touched on what that particular firm's attitude was that, hey, it's a temporary program. We don't want to invest the time and resources. We're bandwidth constrained. Why wouldn't somebody just go to their CPA firm instead of using you? It all depends. And I know that's probably the the world's worst. Are you a consultant? Are you a consultant, Dave? (laughs) That sounds Uh, like a consultant lame answer to me. It is. It's the world's worst canned answer. But I think there's a million reasons why, you know, CPA firms may or may not do this, right? Some of them, like I said, may not have the bandwidth. They may not want to get in the tax technical detail. Some, you know, some of them that I've, that I've spoken with along the way are, you know, the CPAs that are more of a single shingle, right? They, the smaller firm, have a, have a handful of employees, have a handful of folks doing this stuff. They like the fact that uh, they're able to bring somebody who's a specialist in to be able to bring that enhanced value for their client, right? It enhances the service. It shows that, you know, they're bringing experts or expertise, maybe is a better way to say it, to the table around specific topics. You know, I see it quite a bit in some of the other indirect tax spaces, you know, things like, well, the world you live in, right? And I know it's not an indirect tax, but right, it's sort of ancillary to taxes with IC disc, right? That sure. you probably yep, wouldn't suggest that, you know, uh, any practitioner out there go about executing an IC disc on their own without some sort of specialist help. You know, a lot of firms will outsource or have a third party come in and support on things like research and development credits. This Mm -hmm. is no different. You know, I would say the biggest difference here is that um, it's, it is kind of a one-time deal unless, you know, unless there's some other disaster or thing that happens down the road and they use a similar sort of a mechanism. But as far as COVID related stimulus goes, it's a point in time sort of a thing. They're not going to have a COVID-related stimulus program every year like they do research and development, some of the other programs out there. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that's part of it. Um, you know, and then frankly, I think that what one of the things we're seeing a lot is that there's so much out there. It, it, you know, look, this thing operates in a world of gray to some degree, right? There's hundreds of pages of IRS notices, guidance, and clarifications around, you know, a piece of statutory language that's less than one page. Um, To me, that inherently should show the level of complexity that's associated with it. This isn't something that 
you know, you can just sort of go, well, if you answer these four or five questions a certain way, boop, here's your answer. It spits it out and you're done. There's a ton of considerations, including and not limited to all of the rules for small and medium sized businesses in particular, all of the rules around program overlaps, mm -hmm. right? You've got PPP. If you're a restaurant, you've got restaurant revitalization fund grants. You may have uh, save our stages grants. You may have, you know, all of these other things. And especially, you know, we didn't talk about exempt orgs. Exempt orgs, a refundable credit is like a unicorn, right? Sure. It's, it's unbelievably rare and you may never see one. You may never see a tax credit again in your career that an exempt organization can take advantage of because it's refundable. It's tied to payroll. They all pay payroll taxes. And that's the only other than maybe some unrelated business income tied to parking. If you're a hospital system, for example, they, they right. don't really have much other income that sits in a taxable bucket. So the traditional tax credit is meaningless to them. And this one is very meaningful. So you know, there, there's just all of this variability in this complexity that it makes it important to, to not stub your toe. Yep. No, I, I get it. And I, our businesses are, are similar that way. So as we're wrapping up, I'm really down to my final three questions. What, what's it like working with before where you're working with basically hired people, right? CFOs, CEOs, boards of public companies versus interacting with the actual business owner it's you know themselves and the person whose money it is talk to me just a bit about the difference between that where the was it more fun to work with the fortune 500 public companies because of the sophistication that the people had and you could speak at a very uh, technical level and they followed you or have there been aspects of working with the privately held companies that's had some appeal what are the how would you contrast those and your enjoyment of working with those types of people comparing the two in my mind is like comparing apples and bananas okay um, i what i would say is that what i'm doing now right which is you're dealing with the types of things that we're dealing with and the decisions related to this particular topic you're dealing with the business owner the leader of a family office or, mm. or likely the number two person who is directly tied to that business owner and may or may not be a family member. Mm -hmm. Right. And what I would say is I would not trade that interaction relationship experience for anything. And I had a feeling you were going to say that because I feel exactly the same way the ability to make a difference because i mean from my perspective entrepreneurs are the like heroes of our economy and i although i am a serial entrepreneur i'm i have not operated at the scale that our clients have and achieved the level of success they have so anytime i can be in the orbit and be around successful entrepreneurs i just relish that and then the icing on the cake is if I can actually make a meaningful contribution to such an organization, that's just like, I, f I feel like uh, I won the lottery when I have that happen. Do, do, do you know, does that make sense? Does, does that oh, resonate with you at all? Absolutely. And look, that doesn't take anything away from the executives that I interact, that I interacted with over the last 20 years in, in big four and fortune 500 companies, right? That, that, tremendously talented smart people that but there's a, a there is a difference from a fulfillment perspective mm -hmm. when you know that the result that you're attaining is having an impact on that person on their family and especially with some of the smaller businesses in this particular environment and with this particular subject I have, I've had clients who have said to me, this is the difference between us keeping our doors open and not. Wow. Now imagine that, right? You know, you may go out to and be working on a big client and get them a $20 million credit and everybody's excited and, you know, it's wonderful. They probably weren't going to go out of business if they didn't get it. 
they're mm-hmm. going to be able to do a tremendous amount with it and hopefully for good and all of those things. But I've had some credit values that have meant exponentially more to somebody than something like that. And they were five figure credits, right? They weren't even a hundred thousand dollars. Sure. They, and they were, you know, a lifeline. And to me, that meant more. Those kinds of results mean just as much, if not more than finding somebody a million dollars. Yep. No, I, I totally get it. As we're wrapping up here real quickly, tell me about the company, the name, your website, and where the name came from. If you could just do that in a, in a couple minutes as we're wrapping sure. up. Absolutely. So my family, I'm on both sides of my family. I'm third generation in the, the horse racing business. And when we were trying to come up with a name for the company, I was really struggling because as you can imagine, just about every name for a consultancy out there is taken. Sure, sure. And, and I was really struggling. And it was actually my wife who had done some research and came to me one day and said, I think I may have figured it out. I think I have a name. And our family was in the the harness racing business, which I don't if you're familiar with horse racing at all, it's the race horses that have the sulky, or some people call it a cart. Technically it's called a sulky that sits behind it, and that's where mm-hmm. the the driver mm-hmm. of the racehorse sits. And the historical or technical term for the driver of a harness horse is called a rainsman. Oh and wow. So it was kind of one of those, it was a unique name, it was available. And at the same time, it kind of has a cool story with it. And it's a little bit of a nod to my family, right? And frankly, without them, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had a lot of the opportunities that I've had to be able to be here and, and start the company. Oh, that's, that's a great story. And what's the website? www.rainsmanconsulting.com. It's and that's R- rain like a horse rain, right? R-E-I-N. Right. R-E-I-N-S-M-A-N. Okay. Well, that's awesome. So thank you for that. And two more questions. Sure. One or the next to the last one is if you could go back in time and give advice to your 20 or 25-year-old self, what advice might you give to yourself with the perspective that you have having, you know, being 20 years or so older than you were back then? That's a tough one. I know that's the idea. It's supposed to be a tough one, my friend. You know, I, but, 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 uh, you know, you know, on the spot, I would say two things. One, listen more. And two, soak it in. Because I think one thing that I didn't appreciate when early on in my career that I have a much bigger appreciation for now is as much as everybody likes to think they're smart, you learn a heck of a lot more when you close the thing that words come out of and open the thing that words go into. And the second thing is that I reach back and rely on and use experiences that I've had along the way to help shape and form opinions and point of view now. Mm -hmm. And I think I could have done that even better if I had been doing it along the way. And you just, until you get to a point in your career where others kind of coach you and share those types of insights and, and help you, sometimes you don't realize those things. And if I had been coached on that on day one and had accepted that coaching, listened to it and really embraced it. You know, I just think, wow, the impact I feel like I'm having right now, who knows how much earlier I could have been having that same kind of impact. I love that advice. Listen more and soak it in and, and really be paying attention uh, to what's going on so that you can more quickly arrive at insights. Absolutely. I love, I love it. So the last one, 
It's kind of a fun one. So like me, you are what I would call a naturalized Texan, right? Not a native Texan, but we're both naturalized. Is that about right? That's right. That's right. We know how to make, we know how to to cook a brisket and, and enjoy a brisket and listen to country music. I know. Well, you've, you must be prescient because you've, you've stumbled across my last question. So it's a simple question and just give me your gut answer. Okay. Don't overthink it. Mm-hmm. Tex-Mex or barbecue? Oh, barbecue all the way. Awesome. That's the quickest anyone's answered that. Most people need a second or so to think about it. Well, cause you can always have a margarita with barbecue. You, you can. And I, somebody answered it for me and I have to agree with them. They said, if the barbecue is like top 10 percentile, like as far as, you know, on the barbecue bell curve, mm-hmm. absolutely. But they said if the food, like if somebody said, hey, you have a choice between two foods and it's going to be top 10 percentile, take the barbecue. But if they're told, hey, we've got two restaurants to choose from and they're both just average, then you said, have to go, go with the Go with the Tex-Mex. Tex-Mex has more what's the word, like margin for error, more It's a lot harder to screw it up. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, Dave, this has really been fun. And I really just love your story. I think it's really inspiring to other entrepreneurs. And it's inspiring because here's a guy who's been in corporate America his whole career, great career path, uh, great, bright future, but, you know, felt an opportunity and wanted to take advantage of it. And so far, everything's working out. So hats off to you and my my congratulations. And we would love to to work with you in any way we, we can in the future, introducing clients or anything else. So, so congratulations awesome. and, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, you have a great day. Thanks. You do the same. Take care. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-discshow.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.